0: What's up, guys? Welcome to Breaking Walls, episode number 30. My name is James Scully. Today on Breaking Walls, as we enter the middle of the month in December, I've got part two of the conversation that I had with author David Shields about his New York Times pictorial, War is Beautiful. If you haven't heard part one, you should go back and listen to part one before listening to part two, as it's a direct continuation of our chat. The reason why I did that was because I wanted to break up the interview into more easily digestible parts. It's the middle of December on the wall breakers, and I might not have mentioned this, but our topic for this month, being that it's the last month of the year and it's December, it's taking stock. It's important to look back at our lives over the course of a year and say, okay, well where were we in January and what have we done? And to do that positively and say, I've done so many great things this year because I think it's very easy at times to look at the things that we haven't done and that makes us forget about the things we have. So. It is the month of taking stock on The Wall Breakers, and if you want to take stock and get these podcasts, you can do so on SoundCloud, on iTunes. If you subscribe on either one of those mediums, you can then rate us, review us. Please, if you do that, tell a friend, tell two friends. Word of mouth spreads these things, and if you've got some constructive criticism, some positive feedback, I would love to know that as well. The conversation I had with David Shields it was very powerful, something that I can move forward in my life and think about, too. You meet someone that you've never met before, and you have instant synergy with them, you have a good conversation, and you talk about things that the two of you care about. And, once again, if, if you listen to this interview with David and you think to yourself, the photography that he's combed through, the research that he's done, it's all opinion. Well, sure, there's truth in that statement, but at the same time, it's well-backed-up, researched opinion. David Is an incredibly accomplished author, he's a passionate man, and he's not, what you might say, outing the New York Times for sensationalism. As he says multiple times in the interview, it's sort of a lover's quarrel. He doesn't want to see the times become something that it claims not to be. And I I think that's very important because in life, we should be who we truly are and have the courage to do so. Who knows what it would be like if The Times was more likely to do that. So, I'm going to cut it right here, get right back into the conversation with David Shields. Once again, if you haven't heard part one, please go back and do that and then listen to part two. And if you have, kick it right here after this brief pause for part two of my conversation with David Shields on Breaking Walls, episode number 30.
1: Whereas in a way, it does go back to the Times origins. You know, the Times was founded by German Jews who came, the first Times issue was in 1851. And during World War II, the Times had been, and probably in a way still is, accused of being, quote, too Jewish, and earlier too German, but especially too Jewish. And the Times hugely underreported the Holocaust during World War II, they really buried the Holocaust very deep in the paper as an attempt. you know. And they
0: So do you go, not to cut you off, but do you no. look at that as a moment where, it, this is a silly way to put this, but they sold their soul in a way to sell papers and to stay respected by people in power? Something like that.
1: I mean, something like that where basically, I'm not sure how conscious it was. Again, I don't have any access to particular files in which you know, on May 3rd, 1945, the paper said, let's under-report right. the Holocaust. Right, right. But basically, there were absurd accusations against the times. There was a lot of anti-Semitism, huge amounts of anti-Semitism. There still is in the country, but especially in the 20s, the 30s, and 40s, with the rise of World War One and World War 2 proto-Nazism, and the times under reported the Holocaust as a way to not lose, basically, what we call now market share. And so basically, my argument, as I lay out in the introduction of the book, is the times over the last 70 years has hugely overcorrected in the opposite direction. The times, to me, in order to make sure that the center would never again not hold, to never again accused of being insufficiently flag-waving, insufficiently cheerleading, insufficiently sort of manly and bellicose and belligerent and American and military. The Times has virtually without exception supported every American military incursion. There are tiny exceptions that prove the rule, such as printing the Pentagon papers, some Pulitzer Prize-winning Vietnam photographs. But in general, as LBJ said, you know, I can't prosecute this war, Vietnam, without the support of the New York Times. And the Times is wildly invested as a paper, psychologically and financially and culturally and spiritually invested in owning the center of the conversation. The Times never wants to become at the margin you know, as German Jews who came here, and I'm German Jewish, you know, so I feel like I kind of understand the cultural psychology of it, is that uh, the Times wants to own the conversation. And they'll, as we're arguing, they'll do anything to not lose that tenuous grasp they have on access to government and being this weird arbiter of the American debate
0: but we're speaking about the Times wanting to own the center. Is this happening because the center shifts based on what the left and right is doing at the same time? Or to me, when you think of American philosophy, and the only philosophy that I've ever been taught has been started by Americans has been pragmatism. And to be pragmatic means to evolve. You have to continuously evolve as you go along. Right. I guess what I'm asking, for you to publish this, Now, obviously, you're taking, in some ways, a stand against the times, but that doesn't necessarily mean you've, you know, drawn a line in the sand or something. You're seeing an imbalance, and you're trying to bring it back towards a a state of balance. You're saying, it's okay to have physically beautiful photography that can glamorize war, but it can't all be that. It has to be... There has to be a sense of realism, just like if every time you picked up the paper, somebody was getting beheaded on it, you wouldn't want to pick that paper up. It would ruin your day. Can the times... Evolve. If you were talking about how aware is it of itself, do you think that there are people pulling strings behind the scenes? Why is this happening?
1: I mean, those are all hugely open questions to which I don't have obviously definitive answer. I think, you know, I think of this as it might be too generous to say, but it's a bit of a lovers' quarrel argument with the times. This book, in a way instantiates the Times' power because in a way I'm saying the Times still matters. Time, I wouldn't have done this book about the Des Moines Register. It would seem like overkill. The Des Moines Register doesn't have global reach or even national significance, the way that the Times at least aspires to. And in a way, it's rather like I think the Times still has this ombudsman called called the public editor, in which somebody—it changes every year, I believe—but I think somebody said the person now is named Margaret Talbot or something. It's been—it's been various people. Basically, have a Sunday column every week in which the Times ombudsman, a sort of overseer, tries to write a column on the journalistic. Failures in a particular realm at the Mm Times. And the way this is a kind of lengthy Times public editor ombudsman column, in a way, as I say, it's slightly friendly fire coming from me. Like, hey, Times, you still sort of matter. Are you aware of the overwhelming pattern that these pictures embody? Do you have any idea of the not so cryptic? cultural messages, the sort of bat signals that these pictures are sending out, can you not bring more intentionality, more purpose, more hard-won wisdom to these pictures? Can these pictures not be so predictably guilty of painfully, exquisitely good taste? War is not in good taste. Like I think of, uh, there's an Orson Welles film called Chimes at Midnight, and there's a wonderful novel by Stendhal called Charterhouse of Parma in which the contribution of that film and in a way the contribution of the Stendhal, Stendhal novel, is that those were among the first works to convey not some omniscient view of war but to show the absolute frenzy and terror and horror of the battlefield that people say that Stendhal's was supposedly the first time that battle seemed like a crazy, horrific chaos, and that basically it's as if, and that book was written, you know, mid 19th century, and it's as if the times, you know, is pre-Stendhal. It's like the battlefield is still a rather royal theater. You know, there's this kind of gorgeous preservation of power going on. You know, the Afghanistan and Iraqi fields look rather majestic and It's all a very noble enterprise and a rather dignified sacrifice And cheerio. It has this quality of of dignity, nobility, and I'll be so bold as to say a book like Black Planet, a book of mine published 16, 17 years ago. I think that book has changed to a degree sports journalism. A lot of journalists of the next generation have told me that book has made them more aware of the encoded racism of much sports journalism. And even people like Chuck Klosterman and Bill Simmons have said that book
0: has influenced
1: them. My book, Reality Hunger, I think, has definitely, I would argue, has definitely influenced how we think about obliterate the distinction between fiction and nonfiction, rethinking in a hyperdigital world the laws regarding appropriation and has urged people toward the hybridization of forms in literature. And I'll be so bold as to hope that in a book like War is Beautiful, it's not so much the times per se as that maybe is the times gonna change all the front page pictures so every picture is a grisly image of war battle, unlikely. But I would hope it will start a worrisome conversation at Time magazine, at Newsweek, at the Wall Street Journal, the LA Times, at the Des Moines Register, at the Times itself, at The Guardian, at The Observer, at you know, like these pictures send undeniably powerful cultural messages. And here I am, just one reader who's very interested, they we're saying in undercurrents. Here's the undercurrents to me. A lot of people have already agreed with me. People from Noam Chomsky to Ira Glass have said, this book carries some suasion. It has a persuasive quality to it.
0: Can we worry
1: this some more?
0: Right, and I don't think that you necessarily want people to have to agree with you. I just think you want to start a conversation. Definitely. What I've noticed about these photographs, and my life experience as an adult has been a lot of times working for publicly traded companies and there's a a need to keep things as centered and sweet and clean as possible because to sway one way might mean that you're going to lose money and that's really to me why these things are happening. At the end of the day, it comes down to money and you brought up two people specifically, Bill Simmons and Orson Welles. Now Orson Welles in 1938 did the War of the Worlds from the Mercury Theater and then a year later, did Citizen Kane, and couldn't get a single... I mean, I think he did Macbeth a few years after that, and it took him six years to do Macbeth because he had to finance it himself because nobody wanted to get in bed with him after doing those things. But for all the hysteria caused by, say, the War of the Worlds, it worked because he understood what the uh, radio landscape was that particular evening, what was running against him, which was the Chasing Sanborn out, which we spoke off there. So, this but but he well, knew what year was that? N- 1938. Right. Halloween, 1938. Wow. If you listen to both parts of the War of the Worlds, he said at the second part, he explains that it's a story. The first part seems like chaotic on-field reporting that keeps getting spliced in with, and we take you back to the you know the the Work the Plaza did. Hotel where this band is playing, and it'll be like soft. You know, evening music, and so people are getting worked up because you're telling me Martians are landing, and then you're saying, "But listen to this nice uh, overture for a second here." So, so the
1: first hour or so, yeah,
0: there's first half hour, it's fiction,
1: right? The second half hour, he says it's it
0: starts off, yeah, and then you realize that it's a dramatization of an H. G. Wells story. So fascinating, I think. So you know, individual people are, to me, easily taught, very actionable, and they respond very easily, but when you get a large group of people together, it's very easy to promote chaos because the fear of the unknown comes in and and your fears next to mine build my fears up. And Bill Simmons no longer works for ESPN. Exactly. And ESPN has Grantland because of Bill Simmons. But Bill Simmons, one of the reasons why I always respected him was that, one, he's a super fan of basketball, which I happen to be as well. But also, he is not afraid to make off-the-cuff politically incorrect humor but also he will report the facts so you can respect his jokes and laugh at them because you appreciate his honesty and you know that if he makes a joke about an african-american that he's friends with the guy in real life you don't look at it and go well this man is racist you say no look well, it's, it's funny you know and i think people in america have become very easily offended uh, you know okay the reason why i bring that up is because on facebook i have friends that are pro-Palestine, and I have friends that are pro-Israel. So I am seeing both sides of a civilian war being fought, and their sentiment towards it is eerily similar, but on the opposite side. That's fascinating. And, one, and as somebody who only has an academic concern yeah. about right. the situation, right. because I don't have relatives there, you know, it's easy for me to step back from this and say, well, you guys are both saying the same things. <laughs> it seems like you actually both want the same thing. Therefore, I why know. don't you just both get together and iron these things out? And to go back to an earlier question that you asked me, the Times, in my opinion, has a responsibility to if they're going to claim that they're above the, the commotion, to try to get people talking and educating themselves on these things and, and not in a scoldful way. Like you're not you're not even necessarily angry. You're more just trying to be provocative and think at the same time. And that's what the Times' job is supposed to be. And I think maybe that's what you're saying. Yeah, I mean I think there's
1: some there's a certain amount of anger on my part or disappointment or disgruntlement. But you know, like it's basically this, you know, as as Schopenhauer says, you know, this is how we are led as lambs to slaughter. You know, this is how, as Chomsky would say, consent gets manufactured. Yes, it does these images matter. They really do. You know, as I say in the book, you know, Times Picture is worth a thousand years, these images resonate. You know, that, those crystal glasses, you know, they weirdly matter. And that basically I wanna say, you know, here's how the country, the military, industrial media complex, how it manufactures consent. You know, it just is. And And that if we, you know, if this is a run up to war in Syria, These are one of a million things that allow the blindfolds to be placed over our heads, and we weirdly say yes to war yet again.
0: Do you believe, though, that that is because that war is over there somewhere? That it's not in our streets? That's why 9-11 resonates, or these bombings resonate, because while things happen in Syria, they're not considered a first world country.
1: I think it helps. And I think the Times pictures keep these pictures at... That's one of the things about These pictures keep the war at a useful distance.
0: That's a very interesting way to put that. They make
1: war seem both pretty and necessary. And it's that weird contradiction. Because in in fact, they're the
0: exact opposite of that. It's unnecessary and ugly. Exactly. And these pictures create... And the prettiness and necessity
1: are weirdly linked. It's sort of like the prettiness makes the necessity sellable. And the necessity causes the prettiness to be believable. It's a complicated thing. And obviously, this is pure speculation on my part. You know, as I say, I'm not a political scientist. I can't prove this stuff. I'm not a political theorist. I'm not a reporter who has internal memos. I'm what I think of as a metaphor generator. Black planet, reality hunger, war is beautiful. These are sort of of tropes, and that if I have any talent or whatever, it's that I think I I think I seem to have an ability to going back to undercurrents to sort of sniff sniff something in the air before. Other people do. You know, even in a book, an earlier book of mine in 96 called Remote, Reflections on Life in the Shadow of Celebrity, I think caught something about wall-to-wall media somewhat before some people had had articulated it. And Black Planet, I think, was, was good on that. Reality Hunter. And now War is Beautiful. Again, I, I'm not sure I'm necessarily saying anything other people haven't already noticed, And many people who commented on the finished book sort of said something like, I always knew something was rotten in the state of Denmark. And David finally weirdly did the work to prove it. You know, like Ross McAlee sort of says that, and Volman, and people said, you know, yeah, I always knew these pictures were weird. And David did some... good curatorial work to kind of show it and so anyway i'm not sure i'm answering your no question, i think you James, are but you um, are you know i don't know what the answer is i'm good at answering questions i mean asking questions raising problems i'm not sure i have the absolute solution is the times going to ever print truth per se no because as we've said that there's no such thing as somehow objective truth what should the times do? I, you know, On the one hand, there would be unbelievably visceral pics, probably not going to run those every day. On the other hand, there would be sort of flag-waving pics. That's what they're already doing. I'm seeming to urge for, as I say, a kind of hard-won, hard-fought, intentional, purposeful, skeptical relationship to pictures of combat that just swoon in rapture over their own beauty can we not bring more skepticism to the gorgeous women bearing the dead in Syria to the impossibly exquisite crystal glass at the paris restaurant can we, i don't know i just i just need to bring more cultural skepticism to that i think the times is either weirdly oblivious to it or happily willing to, as you say, do anything to move product, including selling extraordinarily superficial and critifying pictures of war.
0: On both levels, I think that there's some of both of those things going on. Namely? Namely that some of it is that the Times is aware of what it's doing because at the end of the day they want to make money and they're looking at formulas, at how they can better best do that. I also do think that, let me stop there for a second, I think that you're talking a little bit about this, or a lot about it actually. When you look at every animal in the world, we can converse about that elephants bury their dead, and therefore they're self-aware individuals. That they just can't speak English like we can, so we, we look at them and say, you know, they're not intelligent or something. But animals rely so much on instinct, And not on a one-to-one human level, but I find that a lot of times in society we're taught to disregard our instincts because it doesn't fit a narrative somewhere. Mm -hmm. But what you're basically saying is that, okay, yes, you did the research and, and found that your hypotheses, you've satisfied them enough for yourself. But instinctively, you knew something was up. And that's why, you know, you're saying people are saying to you, and I even use that same word, it's what's rotten in the state of Denmark. What's below the surface? What's the undercurrent? Trust your instincts. If something feels phony, it probably is phony because you've been around that enough in your life, you know? That's
1: great, James. I really like that. It's so much a good advice to artists and aspiring artists and thinkers is, you know, pay attention to your own nerve endings. You know, it's what I tell my daughter, Natalie, who's... Uh, aspiring and, and burgeoning artists is what I tell myself. That when I did Black Planet, I felt like, Am I crazy or is there a huge amount of underlying racial subtext here? You know, am I crazy or in reality, hunger? You know, isn't the whole discussion of nonfiction and contemporary American literary culture completely ridiculous? I love your idea of paying attention to your own instincts. As you say, one thing I want to ask you, if you can build on it all, I'd love to hear any thoughts that you have as someone who has worked in graphic design for many years. Is there any insight that you have in terms of how these pictures get done, why these pictures get done, what considerations go in, you know, anything that you would know as a working designer that I might not be privy to, not that you've worked at the Times per se, but you have worked at Condé Nast for many years, anything that you can observe about how those decisions are made? Yes, of course, the prettiest picture always shows up, but but anything beyond that?
0: At Pratt, which is, I'll start there because that's where my most formal art training really began as an adult. Pratt is taught under the Walter Gropius Bauhaus style of education. Gropius, in a lot of ways, is the father of modern design. He was a hugely grid-oriented teacher. And so when you look at photographic compositions or graphic design compositions, be it something as simple as a CD jewel case or something much larger than that, you're taught that the eye enters a page at the, the bottom left hand and it slowly circulates around to go to the bottom right hand. And There's ways that the eye sees things. And instinctively, when I design things, I tend to make them that way because that's what you've been taught over and over again. And that's why when I wrote the outline to you, and, and we've deviated a lot from it, which I really like because that's where the conversation went. Right. But I mentioned, do you believe that we can look at these photos and on one hand... Chide their social tone, but on the other hand, appreciate them for artistic photographs. They're stunning. They're
1: stunning,
0: they are. But you know, as this conversation has gone on, prior to me coming here today, I would have said yes, and now I say no.
1: I know. What you mean I was just going to add a footnote. They're they're sort of pseudo stunning because anyway,
0: they're phony, exactly. And I can't appreciate something that's inauthentic exactly. anymore. I mean,
1: the, you know, the great art is a marriage of truth and beauty. And these pictures have beauty, but to me, they tell precious few truths. And, that you know, no, exactly, I agree. They're really pretty and really empty. Yeah. Yeah, and to me, as Dave Hickey points out terribly well in the afterward, how many of these pictures have gone to school in a rather dutiful way on a whole series of modernist masters. Some of these pictures are sort of footnotes to Rauschenberg, Jasper Johns, Gerhard Richter, Mark Rothko, Jackson Pollock, Dennis Hopper, Annie Warhol. I mean, picture after picture are almost riffs on modernist painting. They are. And as Hickey points out, these photographs are in a way just trying. To replicate art rather than in any rigorous way try to document any kind of received reality. These pictures have hardened into a kind of pictorial convention. The Piet, war as fashion photo shoot, war as movie outtake, war as modernist painting. I mean, trope after trope dominates the Times' show bottle. And they seem like they only they have about sort of 14 clickable moves and that is
0: it. And, and that's, nothing else can enter right
1: enter the
0: sort of filter. Well, and to me that goes to your writing in general where you're obviously I consider writing as much an art as painting a photo or uh, to me sure. any form of creativity is sure. an art. And I think you're looking at this and saying like would you say to yourself, well, what's really an autobiography but someone's remembrance of events that if I was alongside of them the entire journey, I remember in a different way, potentially. or right. So how can we call an autobiography a nonfiction when it's just fiction through one person's lens? Or right. that's a good way to say it. As artists, what's next then for us? How do we continue to push this needle forward? Is it that you have to separate finances from craft and do things for the sake of craft so that you're pushing them in a new direction? Do you believe that to be true? Well, I would assume that you would in a way, but...
1: With what is true?
0: That... To create a new genre, you have to be willing to break a few eggs to make an omelette. Sure.
1: Well, I've always liked this line of V.S. Neifold who says, if you want to write seriously, you have to to be willing to break the forms, which I just love. And also um, this line of Walter Benjamin, the, the German writer, who said, all great works of literature either invent a form or dissolve one. I just, I just love That's it. a
0: fantastic this way to that put beautiful. that. Yeah. And I, so much of the work
1: that I love, that I try and do, the works I teach, the works I read, the works I try and create, are precisely works that aspire to do nothing less than create a new form. And that's really exciting to me. And I, you know, I'm not sure if this book is a new form, but it's certainly a strange, a strange little book. And in a way, you could posit that against the times, which is exactly, they are so mired in in 20th century pictorial convention. There is very little, the eyes are not wide open here. In a way, the eyes are, what's the phrase, you know, eyes wide shut. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. These pictures seem, give us nature as majesty, give us war as playground. Give us soldier as God. Give us soldier as Father. Give us wounded soldier as Christ on the cross. Take number 106. Give us war as, you know, as I said earlier, sort of fashion outtake, as gorgeous, gorgeous, beautiful Middle Eastern faces, as movie outtake. These pictures are so trapped in tropes that there's no attempt to lunge Toward reality. And that's you know, that's the argument.
0: I'm understanding where your underlying anger comes from more and more as we talk and this is my opinion actually, not yours, but to me, by portraying these photographs in that way, you're insulting people's intelligence for one when they're looking at them, I think. But also in you a way I mean w- I'm saying the times. That- the times, yes. Or any kind of trite Sure. Anything that's supposed to be hyper realistic but is actually the opposite. Right. In a way, devalue society, I think, as a whole. Because we connect with emotions. And to see true emotion in a photograph is to connect with it. So by muting them as much as possible and making them stagnant works of art, I worry that the, the longer we go down this path as a society, the more Bradbury and Orwell's fears come true, essentially. That- no, exactly.
1: The, the, you know, I can't improve on... On Chomsky, this is how consent gets manufactured. This is how war gets sold. This is how the run up to Syria will happen. These pictures matter. These are, you know, military recruitment posters. You know, this is war as advertisement. You know, these, you know, this is, I mean, not that the Times per se calls the Pentagon and said, okay. The Warren series is going to start in uh, in June. Okay, they will run 106 pictures that show how great Warren. works. Okay, gotcha. If it checks in the mail. Right. And obviously, it doesn't work like that. But it's this very complicated instantiation of authority. It, it, it reifies the, the U.S. government's authority, and it hugely reifies the Times' authority, the Times' whole brand is the Times is a kind of meta-newspaper. It's beyond news. It's not just the Boston Globe or the L.A. Times or even the Washington Post or even the Wall Street Journal. It's the Times. You know, you always people say, you know, the Times. There's only one the Times. Yeah, the Times. And it's like, really? No. Let's see what cultural and political and economic agendas underwrite the Times's very weird stance. I think part of it is, you know, going back to the whole Stuart Colbert thing, is that that we bring enormous skepticism to everything, too. You know, it's easy to bring skepticism to, say, Bush or Reagan or Cheney or Clinton or even Obama from the left, but it's the times, to me, is fascinating. You know, beware of that person who claim
0: to have no agenda? Because There's you, always an agenda. I, there's
1: always an agenda. I think that's part of what I would claim.
0: That's a very, what I would call Randian approach, Ayn Rand. That's right. a very Ayn Rand approach to thinking about things. How so?
1: Like, I'm not a huge Rand person, but tell me how so. Well, in Atlas You're Shrugged. Everyone always has an
0: agenda. Right, everyone, yeah. So she speaks in Atlas Shrugged about looters who. Claim they hate money, but how come they have all of it? As a side example of that, a mentor of mine who's a, a Jesuit priest once told me to beware the devil who looks like the angel. Do right. you know what I mean? Like, right. always assume that there's an agenda because totally. n- we have an agenda for what we want for lunch. It's totally. impossible to not have an agenda.
1: I totally. think part of what I want to argue is the observer principle in physics, namely, the observer by his very presence alters what's perceived. And that basically what I would call for somewhat old fashionedly almost is a more European tradition of journalism. Part of the problem is either the American convention or perhaps the Times-derived convention having to do with the Times' cultural background of trying to be central in this odd way because of of their German-Jewish past and the anti-Semitism that was visited upon the paper and on the owners and their attempt to always tack toward the middle, is that I wish I like a European tradition in which the paper has an agenda and it's overt and you understand the Guardian is here, the Observer is here, the Telegraph is here, the Times of London is here the new statesman is here, and people understand the, the founding principle of the paper, and that agenda could shift, but that it basically, I mean, part of what's great about, say, English newspaper landscape is there's, you know, sort of 15 papers, all competing within a relatively small space. sort are 15 major newspapers, each of which is powerfully contradicting with the other ones, and may the best argument win, and no one, it used to be the Times of London had a sort of the ear of the Tory government, but there's no one newspaper who has this weird iago like relationship sure. to the government, endlessly whispering sweet nothings to the government. It's a it's an I guess if the word comes to mind. It's an improper role for it is. a newspaper. It's you know, if you want to be pravda, be pravda. It's better to be, you know, Fox News, which just admits its role, and we can then sift through that subjective bias. Right. The Times' this whole problem is its sort of pseudo-impartiality, which is serving, in my view, a hugely hegemonic agenda, both for the Times, the government, and sort of U.S. imperialism, and you know, that's a fairly harsh critique, but that is my agenda, and again, I wanted to return to anything else that you want to say as a designer that helps inform our discussion, anything that you'd add or or contradict based on on your work as a designer that would either buttress or contradict my argument, like, how do those pictures get chosen?
0: I believe that everything that you're saying, from my personal opinion, is absolutely correct. And especially having seen the photos and and being aware of social constructs and, and things like that. And having worked for publicly traded companies where dollars and cents are why things get done no matter what. And that's very political. Because within that, it's still not straight up math. It's, well, it's dollars and cents, but they have the connections over here so they always avoid the, you know, the acts and things like that. Um, I believe that the beauty of being alive is that while that's what the times is today, tomorrow it can be something different. Sure. And, and as pragmatism being the only Native American philosophical uh, voice throughout our country's very short history, I think on one hand, America is a very insecure country because of our short history Throughout the entire history of America, we've wanted to be looked at, especially as a New Yorker. I think New York has always wanted to be seen on par with Paris and London, and
1: as totally what that whole sort of Washington Square, yes, exactly, exactly, part of
0: Europe, right?
1: You know, it's really like you know, Paris, New York, Viva la France.
0: I think as America, and and it's hard for me to comment on other places because I'm not living there. And I'm not even, I'm not living in Seattle. I'm living in New York. So my experience is very... You grew up here? Yes, I did. And uh, my only experience living outside of New York was a few months living in the Arizona desert. So the exact opposite, but sort of so much so that it's hard to figure out the middle ground there. As a society, we have to educate each other Mm -hmm. to these things because that... The undercurrent is what will make the change. Don't hope for the truth. Try to understand the truth so that when you see it from both a positive or negative light, you understand what you're looking at. I think that the Times has a responsibility to be as pragmatically efficient as possible. You can't be in the ear of the government and be unbiased. Because there's a, a, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours kind of thing. And so
1: for instance, you know, the Times does have a history... You know, James Reston both advised Kennedy and was editorializing in support of him at, at the same time. Thomas Friedman advises Obama and editorializes in support of him at the same time. It's just a very problematic model of journalism. You know, uh, this guy, Peter Dunfinley, I think his name was, a 19th century journalist, said the role of journalism is to afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. And you, that's, to me... My somewhat idealistic view of, of of what journalism can do, and I think The Times, part of its brand, is to pretend it does that with you know investigative journalism, running series of articles, exploring things on white water or racism or nursing homes or whatever. But that really, its main agenda, you know, this book argues, is to endlessly instantiate and reify its own cultural authority both vis-a-vis a a credulous readership and the U.S. government's broad aims and that's you know very problematic it is and basically I'd say dear reader dear myself I stopped reading the paper I stopped subscribing to it okay if that's what the Times is about can we please be aware of what the Times is doing Read this paper. Look at those crystal glasses. Look at the beautiful mourners. And read against the picture. That's all I'm asking. If the times won't change, maybe we as lambs led to slaughter can change. Exactly. You know, so...
0: I hope
1: the book gains some traction. So I,
0: we'll see. I don't see how it couldn't. I
1: hope so. Thank you so much. Sure. Any, I, anything else? Paul? Yeah,
0: I'd like to close with, with a quote that I think you'd appreciate. One of my heroes, I mentioned to you, Studs Terkel. The last interview he ever did right before he died in 2008. He knew he was at the end. Right. Uh, and the 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 man interviewing him said, "How would you like to be remembered?"
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And although he was everything was going from him, except his mind. He was very much still sharp as a tack. And he stopped and he thought about it. And he said, I think I'd like to be remembered as a man who brought trouble where trouble was needed. And I think that's such a wonderful thing that parallels with what you're doing. David, I want to thank you again for a wonderful conversation. Sorry that we cut it oddly there at the end. There was a I was interviewing David in an apartment in Manhattan and uh, there was a lot of construction work going on and of course ambulances driving by even though we were on not on the first floor we still heard the ambulances so I had to cut it a little bit oddly there but thank you David fantastic chat I love what's been going on with your book release you've gotten a lot of good press for it rightfully so because this is a what one might say a magnum opus of sorts in Your life, even though you have had, it seems at this point in time, several magnum opuses, and I can understand why. This was well-researched. If you disagree with David, he wants you to disagree with him. He just wants to start a conversation about these things. Let's think about them. Let's not just take front-page war photographs at face value. And it's interesting that in the time since I recorded the interview with David last month, and now as we're releasing part two... Last week, the Times, for the first time in years, ran an op-ed on its front page. So perhaps, David, some of the things that you've been saying have been getting through, even if they're not going to come out and say why. I hope everybody's been enjoying their holiday season this year, whether you celebrate Christmas, Hanukkah, no matter who you are, no matter what you consider your race, your religion, it's very important to spend time with family, to remember all of the joyous reasons that we're alive. In my personal life right now, I've been slowly cutting out my Facebook use because I want to make sure that I'm not living a virtual life. I'm living a real life. The world out there is always better than the world that's either in our heads or on our computer screens or our mobile devices. So it's the middle of December. It's the month of taking stock. It's celebration time. Maybe you've been celebrating Hanukkah right now. Maybe you're working on your Christmas list to send to your family or you're buying Gifts for your family, your kids, your parents, your grandparents. Get out there, guys. Break those walls. It's not that hard. In fact, it's a lot of fun. Keep breaking those walls. My name is James Scully. This has been Breaking Walls, episode number 30. And until next time, I'll catch you on the flip side. Thank you very much.